Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy Howes. I am your host. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. Before we get into Anais Mitchell, got a couple of things to go over. If you would like to support the podcast, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can make a contribution to help support the operations here at the pod. You can contribute at basicfolk.com slash donate. A gift of at least $5 a month or a one-time gift of $60 gets you access to Backstage, all of our super cool and fun bonus content. Actually, this month for Backstage, we have an extended lightning round with Aeneas posted right now. The lightning round is something fun that we do at the end of every interview of Basic Folk with our guests. We ask fun, lighthearted questions, and Aeneas did a longer version of the lightning round that you can check out now. If you are a contributor, you can get to it at basicfolk.com slash backstage. And if you're not a member, you can just become one and then you'll get access backstage. Very easy. Another way you can support Basic Folk is by getting one of our handmade Basic Folk beanies that are available for a monthly contribution of $5 a month and you get backstage access. It's really a win-win situation. You can check that out right now in the store at basicfolk.com. You can sign up for our newsletter at the website, or you can follow us on social media, Basic Folk Pod. You can also tell a friend. You can leave a review and a rating, or you can just like keep on listening, which is totally cool, fine, and great. Okay, Anais Mitchell goes track by track through her new self-titled release that is out now, and holy smokes, what a volcano of an album. It's been a decade since she last released an album's worth of new material, and since then, Anais has been keeping very busy with the game-changing Tony Award-winning sensation Town. She started working on Town in the early 2000s and has recently been performing with Bonnie Light Horseman, along with Eric D. Johnson and Josh Kaufman. And it took a global pandemic to stop the world and allow her to concentrate on her own inner world. All of the songs on Aeneas Mitchell are truly biographical, which is not the norm for the Vermont songwriter. She was actually nine months pregnant when the pandemic hit, and thanks to a tip from a Seattle friend, she packed her family up and left the city for her home state. She ended up spending lockdown in her grandparents' house on her family's Vermont compound. There, she unearthed some 
embarrassing teenage journals, which she promptly burned, and had the opportunity to reconnect with her younger self. Those perspectives and more were sewn into this incredible new album. Let's get into it. It was truly a gift to be able to dive deep with Anais and producer Josh Kaufman, who briefly joined us for this episode. Hope you get into this album as deeply as we did, and I look forward to many more inspired forms of art from Anais. She is a treasure, and I am so glad she's in our world. After you get into this episode, you can go way back to Basic Folk Episode 8 and listen to Anais' first appearance on the pod, which was one of my favorite interviews ever. But for now, sit back and let's go through Anais Mitchell, track by track, on Basic Folk. Anais, this is so fun. Thank you so much for talking to me about your beautiful new album. Cindy, I'm so excited always to talk to you, especially when we're recording it. Yeah. So let's start off talking about stillness. Somebody asked you in an interview what you had been influenced by the most in 2020, and your answer was really beautiful. You said stillness and what you found there after living, you know, at a stressful life pace like a lot of people do. And you were talking about how you were hoping that the lesson would stick of what you learn from stillness. So how have you tried to stay connected to it? And what is your current relationship with slowing down? Wow, that was like a really good reminder. <laughs> you just gave me. Um, yeah, okay. So our pandemic year was like very, I mean, everyone's was an upheaval and ours was very dramatic because I was, we were living in New York City. Um, I was nine months pregnant when the pandemic hit New York. And I, I remember just like, I had a friend in Seattle actually who called and was like, you should get out of the city. Because remember how it was like a couple weeks ahead in Seattle. So she, that was a that was an alarm bell for sure. And then um, we decided to to leave. We bought a car. We like didn't own a car, and we like needed an escape vehicle. <laughs> and so we bought a car and we threw all of our stuff in it, and we drove to Vermont, which is where I'm born and raised, and where I lived. Like actually, we lived here for most of our twenties. And um, this is me and Noah and Ramona, who's now eight. And we were, so I was nine months pregnant with our second baby, who's now almost two. Her name is Rosetta. So we got to Vermont and we, we went to my, my family farm. You know all about it. My parents the sheep. <laughs> raised sheep. <laughs> they still have sheep on the farm. And we had the, I had the baby a week later, a week after we got there um, on the farm, oh on the family farm. It's like, you know, home birth. We had our first baby in Vermont, so we, we knew a midwife, and it was... Oh, okay. Yeah. You had connections. Yes, yeah. And so we had this baby. We were living on my family farm. Uh, we moved into the house that my grandparents used to live in when they were alive. So there's basically... My parents have a, a house on this farm. My brother's family has a house. And then when my grandparents were alive, they had this little house, which is now our house. And we, we moved into it, and we were just, like, living there. And so it was a lot of things all at once. It was like, we left New York, we left behind, you know, Hadestown, everything that Mm. was associated with Broadway because Broadway had completely shut down. Suddenly had this little baby. We were in the middle of nowhere in a lot of ways. Mm. And, um, but also like the cradle of my childhood and my youth. And um, it was just like time went into slow motion. It really... And I think a lot of people feel this way that there, there's this um, 
the pandemic was such a traumatic time for so many people. And then there's this other side of the coin, which was like very healing for a lot of people to unplug to the extent that we did. I really unplugged. I don't know if it was because the baby, but I didn't even really feel like I could engage digitally the way a lot of people were at that time. Mm -hmm. So it just was like me and the baby strapped on my chest and walking in the woods and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that stillness, yeah, this record that we're talking about today, like a lot of those songs came out of that time. And, you know, it is funny that you're catching me now because I'm in this phase of promotion of the album and kind of talking about it a lot <laughs> and then going to go on the road and tour a bunch about it. And I'm excited for all of these things because it feels like it's been so long. I maybe took for granted some of these things that now it's like, oh, wow, this is special and I'm excited to share it. But it's also true that immediately when I start talking about the thing that I made, I start to feel like a imposter of myself, kind of. Like it's oh. it's more authentic to be making the work, you know? And then suddenly when you're like, look at this song I did, look at it again, check it out again. It's like, ah, it starts <laughs> to feel weird very fast. And um, I guess the reason I'm saying all this is that I think that you're right. There is a danger. There is like a pendulum swing, where, especially for musicians who've been off the road for a long time where they're like, get me on a tour, get, get me to every city <laughs> in the whole world. And um, it's easy to go too far. And I think for me, like the thing I learned and that I, what I really wanted is to create a balance where there's like more of the focus is on the making of the work and less Mm -hmm. is on the talking about it. You know, that's Mm -hmm. important. Like it's important to share the work that's part of the equation, but it's sort of like there has to be work getting made in order for that to feel real. I was so grateful to be on this family farm because it was as if we were we could have been anywhere. I mean, it felt like we were a little village unto ourselves. And, you know, we weren't obviously masking on the farm. We were like, we were in a pod there. Someone would go Mm. do the shopping. And this was when you would like, you know, take off all your clothes and like wash all of your, you know, stuff when you got home from the store. De-louse yourself. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I haven't had that much kind of quality time with my family my immediate family plus my parents and my brother, you know, it was, it was really something. I know at the age I am now, I can picture, because I know for a lot of people, the kids kind of came home to roost <laughs> in the pandemic. A lot of like kids returned from like college or their city, they're in their 20s, they're living in a city and they came home. And I think the parents had to have been thrilled, you know, for the most part, right. just to get them back in the right. house for a little while. Oh, I think Josh is joining us. Hey guys, yeah. I hey, how you doing? Hi, Josh. Thanks a lot for popping in. Yeah, totally. I wish I I, I I fucked up. I guess I didn't see anything about this coming up, but it's good to see you both. Thank you. A lot of this album is about Aeneas's like reconnection to Vermont, which took place during the pandemic, and you also relocated to like upstate New York and like the Hudson Valley. Where was reconnection for you during the pandemic? And how did you find yourself relating to Aeneas's reconnection during the recording process? That's a good question. Um, Well, so Annie, my wife and I met in the Hudson Valley, which is where we cut Aeneas's record. Um, We met there in the late 90s. And then um, we started playing music together. We moved to New York City and then flash forward like almost 20 years and the pandemic and we sort of fled with our with our then five and a half year old for the Hudson Valley and kind of had this 
feeling of like re-entering a sort of second home, a, a home that we had left, you know, not, not the home that we grew up in, but that was sort of like the place that we grew our relationship originally, like where our roots were. So it was the time, it was the last record I made before our twins were born. So that factored deeply into sort of like planting more roots, you know, and sort of like riding shotgun while Aeneas kind of was able to take me on this journey with her back through people and places that still resonated with her as she was sort of revisiting. I felt like a, a bond with her in the same way. I was sort of experiencing some of that same stuff, but with some different variables, but um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Aeneas, you participated in a song a day writing group among the, and I've never said this out loud, 37 D zero three D. How do you say it? Yeah, you say you can either say people or you say thirty seven D O three D. Thirty seven D O three D. Yeah. All right. So it's a long story, but um, okay. So people is a community and also a record label that were sorted that is curated by Justin Vernon and Aaron and Bryce Desner, and uh, they wanted to call it People. I think it was sort of an ethos thing for them. They liked that idea, but then I think People Magazine was like, "No, you can't do that." So, thirty-seven D O three D is People spelled upside down. Oh. You'll see. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I am delighted. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're twelve years old and you're like doing the thing with the calculator where you make like a dirty word when you turn it upside down. Yeah. Oh my god. So anyways, 37DO3D Collective, you wrote a lot of the songs from the new record out of that writing group, and you said, it unlocked something that allowed me to finish a bunch of songs I'd been sitting on and feeling a bit paralyzed about how to finish them. So can you talk more about what the unlocking felt like and how it felt to like access that part of you again? Mm-hmm. So this writing group is not 37DO3D per se, but there's a couple folks that were running it that I met through that through that collective. Mm-hmm. And basically the idea is um, it's a group of songwriters and everyone writes a song a day and you have to email it to the guy who's like in charge by the end of, by the time you fall asleep. If you don't email in your song, then you're like lovingly, like no drama, but you're not in the group anymore for the rest of the week. So it's kind of like oh. there's an accountability <laughs> there that's like really good for someone like me. I don't know. I was like, I got to get I got to get this thing in. And yeah, it was it's a thing actually that people have told me about this idea, this like song a day idea for a long time. I just thought that's not how I write. That's not how I do it, you know. And interestingly, Felix, who maybe we'll talk about later, wrote, I think, some of his best work writing just a a song. He did a song a day for 50 days. And there's something about the practice that's like, you just, um, you have to say yes to whatever idea comes into your head and, and follow it and trust it and just follow it where it wants to go. And there's no, there's not enough time to second guess an idea and say, this isn't good enough. And, and that Mm. for me was like, it was very healing because I tend to be someone who overthinks a lot and I'll I'll begin to sort of self edit like you know before I've really even figured out where the thing is going and and so um there was a bunch of songs that I started during that time that then became songs on this record and um and one of them that song called Real World is actually just like I wrote that in like an hour it just was kind of like that's what happened that day um 
And then, yeah, there was something about that feeling of the flow that had been so long since I had felt that sense of trust and, and, and flow. And I'd been sitting on some like stanzas for many years, actually, that I had started during the Hadestown years. And I sort of felt like guilty about working on them, like I was cheating on Hadestown if I worked on anything else. Um, and I also just like, I think I didn't trust myself to finish them. And so like Little Big Girl, I, I remember that the first stanza of that song I wrote in 2016, because I was on mm. a tour with um, with Patty Griffin and Sarah Watkins. And that first like verse of it just kind of dropped into my lap. And then I, I couldn't figure out how to finish it for years and years. And so I finally finished mm-hmm. that one. Uh, did I answer the question? <laughs> I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, after writing songs for Hadestown characters to like move plot points along and establish larger than life characters, you were talking about how you're able to write songs in your own voice. So how did that practice give you a new grasp on your own identity and sense of self? Yeah, it's kind of amazing that all the songs on this record are me, are my voice and like my stories from my life, which is not something I usually have done even like Hadestown aside, like even Young Man in America, you know, had a lot of other characters and kind of other stories on it. And it's also funny, but I felt like I had something to say. I felt like I had things I, I needed to like yeah. work through and get off my chest kind of. And um, it's interesting because I'm not a kid anymore, you know. it's I think a lot mm. of this record is about growing up, you know, it's about... It's about growing up. It's a sort of, it's a looking back in a sort of, I don't know if nostalgia is the word, I guess in a certain way it is, you know, songs like Brooklyn Brooklyn Bridge, certainly like looking back at a younger time. Um, And then it's also about, you know, what life is like now and what it's like to be a mom. And um, uh, okay, I guess why I'm saying this is interesting is that I, I think when you're 22 years old, it's easier to be like, I'm the hero of my own, (laughs) of my own story. (laughs) And like, I'm having like, you know, falling in love and breaking up and like, I'm going to write songs about this. And it speaks to everyone. And as a culture, we really love those songs. And I still do. Like you love a song about like young love and the ups and downs of the, the, the young heart, but that's not where I'm at now. And so it kind of was like, wow, I actually have other things to say. And I hope mm. that that can still speak to people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Like, I sent this record to Matt Smith yesterday. I was like, have oh, you heard cool. Aeneas' album? We need to talk about it. And so he listened to it, and he was like, yeah, I think we're all done with music now. This is a perfect album, so oh, shut it down. Matt, <laughs> that's so sweet. I love Matt. Yeah. We always have a little love, Matt love fest on when, when we speak. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's always warranted. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's, if we can, go through each song and talk about it. So starting with Brooklyn Bridge. Over Brooklyn Bridge in a taxi. Over Brooklyn Bridge, you and me in the backseat. Finally got you by my side. Riding high at the end of the night 
You wrote a little track by track, which was very helpful. Um, you said, I started this song when I was living in New York and abandoned it. It felt at the time like an over-romanticization. Romanticization. Nice work. A, thanks. Tough one. <laughs> but as soon as I left New York for good, it was like, fuck it. This is how I feel unbearably romantic about this city. So we did talk about, like, you left New York. And right around that time, March of 2020, like, it seemed like a lot of people had that idea. Like, I got to get out of New York and head home, which you did. How do you reflect on that time? And like, how did leaving change your relationship with New York City or change the relationship with your career? Yeah. Um, Well, for one thing, like, I'm never going to get over New York City. I love New York so much. And I always have it ever since I was a little kid. You know, it's like I grew up in Vermont. New York was the big city that was, you know, attainable. And I always wanted to live there. And, um, I'm so grateful that we did. We were there for seven years, you know, on and off, um, mostly working on Hadestown. And um, I think of that time in New York really uh, very related to the show, to Hadestown, because it was it was a big reason. It was a big part of the reason why I moved there. Like I wanted us to do it anyway, but I kind of needed to be there to work on that show and to take mm-hmm. it as far as, as far as we did. And um, the amazing thing about New York is like, you're going to meet everyone without even trying, you know, you sort of, you meet people, you, 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 you meet people when you go out to a show, you're like, Oh, that's, you know, you know, one of the roaches or like, I, I, there's just, there's a way in which it's easy, you know, to like try that hard to make things happen. And also it's exciting because like everyone, there's so much ambition and dreams and creative energy, like, that song Brooklyn Bridge, I think about that of just like there's so many that idea, that feeling of like having a romantic New York night and you're out in the back of a cab, but it's like I want to be someone, you know, I want to be one in a million, <laughs> and like you are, like you're literally one of a million, <laughs> like just so so many other people that have that that also want to be one in a million, and um, yeah, there's something about that and uh, leaving it behind, like. Well, certainly it gave me a lot of feelings and perspective about it. Um, also, like there's something about the solitude of being in the middle of nowhere that is really good for for writing for me. Like I definitely, I felt able to reconnect with like my voice in a way that um, I don't know that that could have happened if I'd stayed mm-hmm. in the city. It was like, um, the, yeah, so... I don't know. I feel like I'm not done with it. Like, maybe I'll go back mm. at some point and uh, if I made another show or I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go down. But but this, but this essentially, I don't think I said this before, but we have moved to Vermont. Like, we're not going back. We let Our lease was up, you know, and we let it go. And um, Do you have a Vermont driver's license? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was a big deal. We got the license plates. Yeah. We got the driver's license. Yeah. And we're, we're renovating my grandparents' house on the family farm. So we're actually moving to that space and Whoa. You know, yeah, raise our kids That's there. A big deal. Totally. Yeah. One more question about that song. Who are you in the cab with? That's so funny because somebody else <laughs> asked that. I thought it was like such an invasive question, but um, no, no, it's about, it could be about a lot of people. It felt bigger than that to me, but the one person that actually that I know it's not not about is actually Rachel Chavkin, the director of Hadestown. Obviously not a romantic, you know, relationship, but a, well, I mean, I think a friendship can be romantic. A a collaboration, a friendship can be 
mm-hmm. romantic. And, and I just remember a bunch of nights driving back to Brooklyn in the back of a cab with her after working on Town all day in a rehearse all day and all, all night and then like riding home finally at the end of the night and all the dreams we had for this show. You know, I can remember mm-hmm. like when the Tony Award, they were going to nominate people for Tonys and we were sort of like, we wanted everyone, we wanted, you know, all the actors and all the design team and stuff. We were sort of like chanting for them, <laughs> for them to to be nominated for Tonys and um, and then they and then they were. It was like really extraordinary. Um, so Rachel, in my mind, when I'm like, who is that person in the cab? It's Rachel. We but we had that moment about Brooklyn Bridge, Josh, because we both had left Brooklyn um, and we're missing it, you know, and like, yeah. And I was looking at that and I, that lyric over Brooklyn Bridge, like. Like the very literal feeling of going over it, but also the feeling maybe of being over it also (laughs) was like hitting me in this way that was like really, I remember cutting it on the floor, you know, and like, and and because it's has this like trance quality and puts you into the space. Like, I remember feeling like pulled into that other side of of the meaning, which I'm I'm sure is not what you meant, but like for some reason, like pulled me there. And and I'll never never be over it. I'm never getting over it. I want everything I want. Okay, Bright Star, what a beautiful, complex song about chasing a muse, uh, chasing an ambition. Um, You said Bright Star is about looking back on years of restless pursuit and making peace with the source of that longing. You and I are basically the same age, so this is about the inspiration or the opportunity that got away, which I feel very deeply, like, Mm. at this age, Mm. of, of being like... Well, that's not going to happen and like feeling like okay about it. So mm. what does the other side of that look like for you now? And what does making peace that it got away look like? Yeah, interesting. So, right. So for me, like the bright star is that thing that motivates you that you can never can have or own or touch, you know? And maybe that is what you're speaking about, a sort of a dream or an opportunity that you were chasing that you're never gonna you're never gonna possess it. But it it guided your life and probably continues mm-hmm. to guide your life in this incredible way. Like I wrote these songs um a bunch of years ago for Young Man in America. A lot of them were about um my dad and my dad's dad. Um and there's this one song uh, called He Did, that was like, really about like my dad's experience of his his dad sort of and not being like emotionally available to him and kind of like mm-hmm. not saying I love you, I'm proud of you and, and all the ways in which my dad like strived and maybe pushed against him and you know, all these things and my dad like became a writer and like rebelled in various ways and like 
he's done all these things that are sort of motivated by this absence. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And so there's a, gr- there's a level of gratitude for that absence, even though it sucks. You know what I mean? Wow, yes. Like, yeah. the disappointments... I, I sort of was dwelling on these thoughts because because I suddenly was in Vermont again. I could see the stars again, and I could and I wasn't going anywhere. And I just think we we're, we're always moving so fast, mm-hmm. you know. I was it, so obsessed with Hades Town for so long. I just was you know chasing and chasing and chasing this thing, and then it's, it was wild to just catch it, like a dog that catches the truck is chasing you know what are you gonna do (laughs) and now and then suddenly all of that has disappeared and I'm and I'm back in the farm that I grew up on it was really like it felt like there was a clearing a vista break star I'm home now from my roaming I'm alone now in the gloaming with the ships out in the yard break star there's a thought upon me dawning and longings and I don't know who you are Bright star You've never been my vessel Or the wind my sails are wrestled Or the lands to which I traveled Or the friends with whom I reveled There are lengths to which you'll never know I went to be your lover And be loved in your sight Okay, Revenant I looked up what that meant. It's one that returns after death or a long absence. So that song has you going through old letters and journals in your grandmother's house and reconnecting with your younger self, for better or for worse. Read your letters all again Coffee rings in a ballpoint pen Tear stings every now and then I remember what they meant Revenant Come on back again Come on, Revenant Come and take my hand Revenant Come on back I actually came across some teenage journals of my own in my parents' house during the pandemic Oh my god definitely threw them away Yes, I burned some I burned them outside in like a bonfire Was it like ritualistic where you just like get these out of here, no one needs to see them (laughs) Yeah, exactly you sing seemingly to yourself in this song, Come On Back Again. Do you think that you were like destined to return to your childhood self? Like, did it feel like you were waiting for yourself? And then what was it like to like get back with your childhood self, especially since like you are a mom? Yeah, all of those things. Like this song, Revenant, kind of remains mysterious to me. And I liked that about it. I felt like comfortable not completely understanding it you know this one definitely came out of this the song a day like thing and I can't tell I can't tell if the revenant is is me you know returning home or if it's my grandma as kind of like spirit of my grandma and like re-encountering that stuff being back in the house um I grew up you know in and out of that house like by um my grandparents lived on that farm and I spent a ton of time in that house and um my parents both worked full time so like you know we would go there after school my grandma would cook for us and um she was a very creative woman although not like an artist per se she um 
you know, in terms of homemaking, she was a quilter. So that was sort of a creative outlet for her. And she was always crafting and, you know, cooking and making events like tonight we're going <laughs> to, we're going to have Japanese food and we're all going to wear kimonos or whatever. Um, and she was a gardener and they're just, I have this thing about that house. Like it's literally my happy place. Like when I was going to give birth to Ramona, I did a hypnobirthing class beforehand and they were like, go, like, think of your happy place. And I, and that was my happy place. It was like my grandparents' house. I could picture, um, laying on a carpeted floor, like with a, in a sunbeam, a sunbeam coming through the sliding glass door. And I'm just laying there and there's, and I can hear the sound of like the sewing machine upstairs and my granddad, like watching television and, or like mowing the lawn. There's all this ambient feelings, ambient kind of sound and smells and tastes and, um, a time of like real, well, I, I guess anyone's childhood really is this, but, um, absorption in the world around, in your surroundings and mm. not really self-aware and, um, when just, you know, cradled by the surroundings and, invisible also you know mm. and I, mm-hmm. I, all of those feelings I felt I kind of felt them coming back around being back um mm-hmm. in the house and and the invisibility one is interesting also because it was like everyone I, I I don't pretend to have like an experience of fame the way that some people do but living in New York working on the Broadway thing it definitely felt like oh you better <laughs> do your hair because you know, there might be a picture of you in the internet the next day do you know what I mean and yeah, it yeah. was really nice to just disconnect from all of that and be like mm-hmm. wow I'm just I'm just I'm just out here in nature with, the, with these children mm. yeah you also um we're talking about how that song is about healing old hurts, maybe even ones handed down the generations. Mm. So can you get into healing generational hurts and how that discovery has impacted or changed you? Right. This is huge. So I also did therapy for the first time during the pandemic. This is something I never had done. And I felt like in a way, the uh, fact that you could you could Zoom these things made them easier. I also took piano lessons and violin lessons because it was all on my computer, which is kind of amazing. Oh my gosh, you're so busy. <laughs> I mean, yes and no, you know, it's just like <laughs> busy in a different way than I'm used to. And yeah, I guess um, I don't think I've gone, I went as deep with therapy as like some people have and and there's so much more to discover, but certainly like at this age, I think I'm a little more able to see, see my parents for, you know, the kids that they were when they were raising us. I mean, mm-hmm. cause that's how old I am now. <laughs> In fact, they were, you know, younger just to like acknowledge the patterns, the habits that we have learned and are going to repeat probably and can only try to like put some space around and, and some thoughtfulness. And, um, I don't even know what the specific kind of trauma was or pain was, but I, but in this song, it was very mysterious. Like there's this image of a child, like crying in a chair, you know, Mm -hmm. which for me is like an image of, um, 
of shame, like a, an early experience of shame. Actually, I think I remember trying to get this in the song somehow, this feeling of shame. And, um, you know what I mean? When you're in it, when you, when someone makes you sit in a chair, <laughs> we used to talk about this. We used to have a shorthand in my family for like, if you got in trouble, like, Oh, I had to sit in a chair. Like we used to say that. <laughs> and so like, yeah, suddenly I saw you there runny, eyed in a wooden chair, you know, ran outside to hide your face in the wild Queen Anne's lace green and white around your waist, waving in the wind. And I, and I just pictured like, yeah, you're a little kid, you get upset about something in the house and you just run outside, just run outside into the garden and you're like mm. free again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what does this have to do with my adult experience of shame? <laughs> I don't know, but it was, you know, it wanted to be in the song and there's a reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm thinking of all the songs I can think of about a young child sitting in a chair. Chairs are powerful, like archetypal yeah. image. It also rhymes with hair and like there's something about, oh right, found a lock of a child's hair. Like I did picture getting a haircut as a kid, like sitting in a chair, which also is an experience of like, uh, like disempowerment or something mm. when you're a little kid, you know? Just like Samson. sitting in a chair. Totally, Samson. Chairs. Every yoga teacher will tell you that chairs are the downfall of Western society. Oh, wow. Yeah. We started ruining our bodies when we started sitting in chairs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Maybe yeah. that's why in like the, the classic like therapy room, there's a couch that you lie on, right? Yeah. I also had a question for Josh about Revenant. Um, if you remember, I'm hopefully you remember what these songs sound like, because this is a question about how the song sounds. It actually... So it is about um, Aeneas kind of like going through old letters and reconnecting with her childhood self. But Josh, it actually sounds like a little kid playing outside, you know, like running through the grass. And there is kind of like some longing uh, that I can hear in the saxophone and the guitars. And Aeneas's voice is like doing a heck of a job carrying the song here and the production like supports thematically and I want to hear about your choices for this song in terms of like how they relate to the song's meaning mm -hmm. well the way Aeneas articulates her guitar part has this sort of like like kind of busy skittering rhythm that I felt like we started as a full band on the floor and I kept on peeling away people because it kept on sounding like it was cluttering her patterns, you know? I think I put like JT just playing snare drum with brushes across from Aeneas and they just played together down after doing it quite a few times the other way, right, Aeneas? That's that right. Yeah, yes. I remember that. Me and then, JT. Yeah, just the two, JT Bates and Aeneas. And, um, and that worked out really well because they could sort of like find the space the sort of like nano space between her picking pattern and, mm. and like the um, locomotion that the song has at the center of it. And um, so we found that first and then, yeah, I think the playfulness of the saxophone that kind of like jumps off a melody that's already in the, in the song there and then kind of runs away with it. Like you described, like kind of running into the field, right? Taking the melody and running with it and then getting a bunch of ticks. <laughs> just getting ticks <laughs> exactly <laughs> and um and the guitar i think so there's the sound i really love that the guitar can make where you sort of take away the attack of it like the pluck part and you just hear the sort of like harmonic of it as it sort of like 
drifts and floats over things. And um, so I, I thought that would feel nice in there too. Sort of like, okay, if we're sticking with the field and the ticks, this would be like the dew settling or something, you know, um, Ooh, or yeah. like the or the mist or something, you know, like and uh, that kind of that kind of feeling, like kind of like searching back through a memory. It's kind of like a little fuzzy on the sides, you know. Yeah. And I think yeah. that 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 sound kind of helps build that picture. Oh, familiar chest of drawers holds the mirror you dressed before. Throwing shadows on the floor. song which is about our friend Felix it's called On Your Way Felix Song On your way On the F train in the dark On your way You were wearing your guitar For those who are not aware Felix McTeague was a record producer and a really accomplished songwriter and musician His two most famous songs he wrote were Florida Georgia Lines Anything Goes and Laurie McKenna's Wreck You He died on July 24th, 2020, after complications from surgery. He was 48 years old. His birth mother was Maggie Roach of the Roaches, which I didn't find out until like 2019. The last time I saw him was at Folk Alliance, and I think we were with Don Landis just in like the coffee shop area of Folk Alliance. And they were talking about the Maggie Roach tribute show. And I looked at him. I was like, Maggie Roach is your mom? He's like, I know, right? Is yeah. just like a very Felix response. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you wrote about Felix. He was a very present person, always rushing at the moment. He had a sort of go for it, do it now philosophy about creativity. It was just like him to be the life of the party, then quietly slip out the back. There's so many things that I could say about this song. And, you know, I knew Felix not as well as you did, but you didn't really have to know him that well just to know how much of like a kindred and how special of a a person he was. I think my favorite part of the song is when you say you wouldn't have wanted me to cry, you wouldn't want me to be haunted by the song we never got to write. The sight of you on a New York night, you didn't like to say goodbye. Let's just talk about Felix and what do you think he would think of this song and how would he want to be remembered? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there was a song that we liked, (laughs) we always talked about writing, like Felix loved to co-write. I mean, he did a ton of it. And I I always was more like precious about my shit, you know, and I was like, (laughs) but I did, you know, we attempted a couple things a couple times because he was always like pushing for it. And I listened to the voice memo that you sent of him, like, um, I don't know if he was writing that song in the moment when he... We, yeah, I was like, Felix, together. I just... Yeah, so the story, the background story is the last time I saw Felix, I was with my very good friend, Lindsay, and I said, Felix, I just sold my house in Pittsburgh, and I'm having, like, a lot of feelings about it, and I really feel like somebody should write a song about, like, what it's like to sell a house. And he was like, all right, let's do it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, he's like that. He's totally. found a corner and just like t- took an hour or two to write a song. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah he loved to um, to work with people. He was so game. He was just so game, like for whatever. Uh, amazing conversationalist. Also, like just always so fun to encounter at a party or whatever. He's just. Um, so we we had this kind of running joke that we were gonna hit and we we're gonna write write like a hit song together, and I actually I remember I shared with him like the first stanza of that song Now You Know when I first was writing it in a, in a bar in New York and was like should we do this mm-hmm. one together and he was like no you, that's your song you should finish that one yourself. <laughs> um, we we tried a few times and so when I started writing this one about him it was like oh this is I felt like. I did feel I did feel him in the room at some level. Like, you know, I didn't want to let him down. Also, I felt like he was going to judge me if I like took too long and edited it too much. Do you know what I mean? Cuz he would want me to just yeah. like throw it down. And in fact, the song is like, you know, you get one take. Josh, did you know Felix? How did you try to like incorporate him musically in the song? And then how did working on this song make you feel close to him? I was introduced, I think when he passed Aeneas and I were either getting together and you told me about him briefly but I feel like I was most introduced to him through this song if you've ever seen a movie that you couldn't stop thinking about the story just stayed with you for for a long time I feel like the song kind of like put me in a place where like I kind of can't shake it like I feel like uh I feel connected to this person and there's also like just some images in in the song of like like making demos in the basement, you know, or like focusing in on the sound of an instrument. I think in, I think it's a bass drum or something in the song, but it's like the kick drum. And it's like, you have that thing. I have that thing, you know what I mean? Where you want to like study a sound, mm-hmm. wonder like what, what, what makes it feel? Like, why does it feel, you know? And then you want to go back to it. And the sort of like fascination with songs and songwriting and the way sounds can pull a song up out of the, you know, make it more three-dimensional and make it more like experiential. And like, um, it sounds like this guy had that bug. I I relate to that. Well, I remembered some things when Josh was talking about Felix, like things that Felix said about songwriting and stuff. Um, Cause I met Felix in my early twenties. We briefly had the same manager. And so we were put on like some shows together and, um, he came to Vermont. He played like, he even came actually and sort of produced some demos for me at one point. Oh. Uh, and I did make demos with him in the basement, like I, in the basement of our manager's house <laughs> in Boston. I remember us like making a demo of this like song we were trying to write at the time. Um, and I remember him saying like, he he loved yeah he loved like song form and like tightness of form like he wanted i remember him saying he wanted this the verse to be like a cigarette that was just get you the nicotine of the chorus as quickly as possible it, like he wanted to like get people the drug that they needed <laughs> <laughs> uh and this record that he made um when he wrote 50 songs in 50 days called it was called um fdr was the moniker of the band mm-hmm. and then it was called the new deal and the songs are there a lot of them are really short and he plays and sings everything um and they're all songs that he wrote like in a day and 
They're so good. They're like haiku. Like they're really vivid and、mm-hmm. brief. And、um, uh, my husband, Noah, actually got really obsessed with that record. I remember him putting it on a lot. And、um, yeah, something about that way of creating. And this is what it talks about in the song, you know.、Um, Uh, no regrets and no mistakes. Like you get one take, you know. The, the tape is rolling right now, and it's like, don't, you know, don't overthink it. This, you get one take,、yeah. so just go for it. And that's really how he lived his life, I think, you know. That's really、yeah. how he created. And like he couldn't have known that he wasn't going to get, you know, the, a, a long, long life, but, you know, he, he sort of lived like he knew it in some way. Like、mm. he, you know, I, I can't picture him. Holding back <laughs> almost ever,、yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. Oh, so well said and such a beautiful tribute to like a great, wonderful person. Thanks for writing it, Anais. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it, thanks for listening. And it, it's special to me that you, know, you knew him because a lot of people won't. Yeah. Tonight I'm gonna be a seeker, staring at a new stereo speaker. Kick drum and someone singing, make me one with everything. Tonight my tape is rolling. I'm going where the take is going. No regrets and no mistakes. Get one take. So the next song, Real World,、uh, you said that phrase, real world, had passed through my heart a lot looking at our device obsessed digital world. Then the pandemic gave the phrase a whole new meaning. So I am also interested in living in reality. I feel like I grew up pretty sheltered, but like upon looking back, I had encounters with a lot of different people, and my lust of life and learning about the real world has driven me more and more like as I get older. I want to live in the real world. Wake up, real birds singing loud enough to be really heard by us in the real world. I want to lie in the real grass, watch the real clouds rolling past the pastures. The everlasting feels of the real world. You know, we're about the same age, and interestingly, like, so we're part of a micro generation called Xennial. You probably know about this. Yes. You can, you can take like a quiz, like a New York Times quiz, to find out <laughs> how much millennial is in you and how much Gen X is in you. But、um, the, what defines that generation, which I was born in 81, is that like we had this analog childhood and then a digital young adulthood. Like, we didn't have the smartphones till our 20s. So sometimes I think, not to be like overly dramatic about it, but it's as if we're like the last generation that has a memory of the world before these devices, right?、Mm-hmm. And、yeah. I guess、um, for me, it means various things. There's a,、uh, I, I was thinking about this recently, and I was remembering、um, going to the Kerrville Folk Festival when I was in my early 20s,、um, which was、the、like. A paramount event. Yeah, I had heard about it. So I had heard the Michelle Shocked like campfire、mm-hmm. tapes, and my like high school boyfriend was into Kerrville. And I was like, I, I remember、um, the first time I went, I actually missed the festival. Like I had the wrong dates, and I took a Greyhound bus all the way from New England to Texas. And I got there, and, and、um, <sighs> the festival was over. And、uh, someone like met me at the train station. So I didn't have a phone. I mean, I didn't even have a flip phone back then. And then my experience of going back to this festival, and it's like you're just surrounded by people in the heat of Texas, this like thick, kind of white, caliche dust of the 
campground and you're like sort of hanging out all day just hanging out with people all day like eating a breakfast taco and then you know drinking coffee until you start to drink beer and you're like then you play songs all night and you're like just this okay so the things I was identifying about it were it was like boring at times right and random at times you couldn't always be where the most exciting thing was happening the way that now you kind of can there's mm-hmm. a randomness in the old world where it was like so leaving Kerrville aside you're like touring and you're like I'm gonna get like a hazelnut flavored terrible coffee at this like vaguely Christian coffee shop in like a strange <laughs> town because I don't have a phone that's gonna tell me where to get like a sweet espresso do you know what I mean like there mm-hmm. was this randomness which was mystical in a way do you know what I mean mm-hmm. yes. maybe I'm maybe I'm over romanticizing it but it was like you just would strike up a conversation with someone random Mm -hmm. person that you're sitting on a flight with and they would be reading a book and then maybe you'd be like interested in getting that book from a bookshop and then you'd get the book and then maybe it would there were signs and signals in the world that were kind of mystical that you could encounter because you're open to them whereas now like we don't have that outward sort of receptor because we're just if we get bored, if we get stuck, we just turn to the device and have the device tell us, you know, what to mm-hmm. do. And so, like, yeah, the boredom, the randomness, the utter, like, immersion in your surroundings, which was really what I was remembering about my grandma's house in my childhood, you know? Mm-hmm. That immersive quality. I can remember driving down the highway, seeing something so beautiful out of the window and not having the opportunity to tell somebody like there's no one I could call and tell them uh or share or like take a picture and put it on Instagram like look I saw a beautiful thing it just it happened for me you know and it did Mm -hmm. a thing in my heart and then that like something about it 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 crystallizing in there instead of me spilling the sap of it by just sharing it right away um I believe there's a lot of things that we've lost, left behind. And I, and me too, myself included. It's not like I'm like living in some holier than thou way at all. Like I'm addicted to the device as well. But I have a memory of when that wasn't part of my life and I want it back. Mm. And Josh, what I really like about the guitar part is that you can hear the guitar creaking like fairly loudly, um, which I think it's really cool. But can you talk about the choice of guitar for that song and the added effects from its character? The added effects from its character. I think, I, I don't know. Um, but the uh, choice for that guitar um, is just, that's the that's my guitar. And then, um, and then uh, so <laughs> there's that. Um, and uh, But there is a tuning that Anais and I are fond of. Um, that I think that, that one's in. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it started with both of us playing guitar. And then I had some ideas for like the bottom of the harmony to move slightly differently. So then Anais was like, I'll just sing and you play. So I was kind of just improvising against your singing. Because I think there's only, I think there's only one full take of that song and it's that one. Mm-hmm. There's, there's two in, in terms of that, with that arrangement, with me just playing and you singing. Yeah. There's only two, and only one is complete, and the one that's on the record is complete. 
So it's kind of just me like, like kind of following you. And it's like the sound of me thinking. (laughs) I remember Justin, I think you kind of darkened the chords a little. Like it's it's a little darker than my, my version, which would be like all major chords. And this has a little more like sorrow in it or, you know, the underside of, because it's a, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're talking about the real world and we're talking about, or Neas is talking about the real world, talking about like, being with people and connecting people in like real time. And like th- when we made this record, it was like the height of infections and, and hospital numbers mm-hmm. are skyrocketing and all this stuff. Right. And yeah. so it's sort of like, it was a, a gift and a blessing to be in the real world together at that moment. But there was mm-hmm. outside of that bubble, it was sorrowful. It felt like we were mourning something or the beginning of mourning something. So Maybe those chords, like Anais was saying, like the darker, sadder chords that I was like, again, sort of just improvising around her vocal. Like maybe that was me feeling that and putting that into the song in a way that, you know, it felt to me like it was speaking that as well. I don't know. What do you think, Anais? Yeah, totally. It felt felt that way to me. I want to talk with my mouth full. Pass around the vegetables with real folks at a real table A meal in the real world I wanna dance in your real grip Feel your real hands on my hips Taste real whiskey on your lips when we kiss in the real world I wanna cry on your shoulder Real feelings flowing over Blow my nose while you really hold me close in the real world I want to live in a real world Wake up to real birds singing Loud enough to be really heard by us in the real world Backroads is the next song we're going to talk about. Um, Just to set it up for the listener, a song about coming of age in rural Vermont with also an acknowledgement of white privilege that not everyone can party in the woods and run from the cops like you did. I recall small town stars, the radial tower and the reservoir The way it was, the way it goes, and the crazy way you drove back roads And this song is interesting to me in a couple of ways Including you singing the phrase, you might be someone someday Which is the second time on the record, you were talking about it earlier Where you used the like, I want to be someone in Brooklyn Bridge, you say, I want to be someone, I want to be once in a lifetime. So, like, what has been your experience with that sentiment, like, you might be someone kind of mm. thought process? Yeah, that's so funny. I only just realized, like, a couple of days ago that that phrase comes up twice on the record. That's funny. There's, this was, like, it wanted to come out, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... Right, I grew up in this little community in Vermont. Um, there's a lot of kind of nostalgia, I think, and sort of thinking that when I when I started to write this song, actually, it was a pure like childhood nostalgia piece about like growing up in in the in a rural place and mm-hmm. back back roads. You know, when that when that phrase kind of came, and that was another phrase that sort of lived in my lived in my back pocket for a long time like real world and and um, little big girl and and back roads there's just something about it like there is something ominous though about that that, that word right mm-hmm. and i was actually part way through writing this song when like 
the Black Lives Matter protests began to really surge in the summer of 2020. And, and I suddenly like realized what a white nostalgia piece I was writing or that it felt like really privileged that I was able to write this song. And so mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do except to write that into the song. So that's why that is part of the story. And, but a lot of it is about kind of like, I don't know, we thought we were living on the edge in some way. You know, we're like teenagers, it's like young love. You think it's, you're the only ones <laughs> that have ever felt this mm-hmm. way. And like my boyfriend, like, but you know, thought you were a rebel of some kind, you know, like, meanwhile, we're being completely cared for and, and looked after by these benevolent adults in our life, you know, like mm-hmm. you, we're able to feel somehow that we're like, living on the edge when when that's like as far from the truth as you can get. Like we actually are completely cradled by this community that we're growing up in, including the cops, you know, including that the cops are there to like keep us safe and slap us on the wrist. And that's not the experience of a black kid growing up in this country. Um, And I think part of it was also, yeah, that idea of like, you know, you're a white kid, like you're growing up in an environment where you can afford to think like I might be someone, you know, I, you're going to go, you're going to go and And there's also this sort of small town feeling of like, you're going to go out in the world and like do, do great things. Almost a kind of proprietary feeling, right? About it's from that. all those like participation trophies. You were given. <laughs> yeah, totally. There's something about those feelings that felt very, very real to me. Like, like that I was both writing a cliche, but also it was totally true of my childhood. Like my town did have a reservoir and a a radio tower, you know, (laughs) and the small town stars, that idea of like the small town stars. You don't realize that they're small town stars when you're living in a small town. You know, you don't realize what the small town is until you leave. Small town stars that show seem to say you are one of our hey you might be someone someday so i guess like for me it's about recognizing the cliche that i was born and raised in and also you know it was real for me like it doesn't yeah. make it less real the fact that it was a cliche or that there was privilege there it's like, this is my experience. Like, this is my childhood. The song Little Big Girl, you said, I wrote this for my mom, myself, my daughters, and anyone who knows what it means. And um, Kim Rule, who you talked to recently, as uh, the host of the podcast, Why We Write, we were texting about your album, and she told me to sit down for this one, and I'm glad I did. Mm. Um, because, like, Anais, you're saying things in this song that I feel like I have thought, like, a thousand times, but I've never heard them out loud. Mm. Um, and you said it took you a long time to finish this song. So can you talk about where the biggest challenges laid for communicating this complicated song? Yeah, Totally. Right. So this is the one that like the first verse came out, came to me like a gift. And then I just like I tried and tried to finish it and I and I couldn't. I kept getting stuck. Um, I'm not sure if I just needed to live more years, you know, in order to write it, to have another Mm -hmm. kid, 
you feel like surrounded by kids when <laughs> you only have two, but you know, there's like something about that experience of having the second one where like you're almost outnumbered or it's like, oh my God, I'm not, a, I'm not a kid anymore. Like I'm the grown up in the room. Um, I think for me, like I had a really hard time writing this one. It's funny that we also spoke about that song he did from Young Man in America, because that's another one that took years to write. And part of it was like, I was talking about my mom, you know? And then he did, I'm talking about my dad. And it felt like I did, I wanted to tell the truth, but I didn't want to like hurt someone's feelings or, you know, my mom is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I just, but there is, there is in a way a kind of acknowledgement of the shortfall that has happened in terms of women teaching girls how to be women, you know? I think also that thing of really wanting it to be true. And, th and this song, like multiple times, it kept veering into this place where it felt like um, a feminist anthem, like where I was on a soapbox of some kind. And that's not what the song is really for me. It's like an acknowledgement deeply of the sh my own shortcomings <laughs> as a sort of feminist and as a kind of like the hard time that it's been to grow up and to like come into my 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 adult power. The last time you were on the podcast, we like got into a really interesting discussion about like feminism and like feminism in the 90s. And that's like when we were basically like just about to take flight and into like the 20, the 2000s. It was just like a weird end of, we figured out it was the end of the third wave or second wave or whatever wave. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just was a strange time. You know, the internet really changed everything in terms of like what it's like to be a human. So I hear what you're mm -hmm. saying on that one. Mm -hmm. Man, what a song that is, though. Thanks. I felt like it felt really real when I finished it. And then recording it was like pretty cathartic. It's funny because we tried all day to record it in these different ways. It didn't feel right. And it was so funny. It was like playing with JT, like my favorite drummer in the universe and but it felt like we couldn't get with each other somehow. Like he was trying to play too carefully or I was trying to be too careful or something. And we finally, we got so mad. We're just like, oh my God, we got to just, everyone goes on the floor and just records mm -hmm. it live again together. And in the same room. In the same room at the same time. And it was even like Thomas Bartlett was on the piano and like everyone was like all hands on deck for this thing. Mm -hmm. And we just had tried it. And I was feeling so frustrated. And also I kind of felt like... I was like, I didn't want to be drowned out by the band, especially in a song like this, which is about, you know, who is all men actually in the, in the, in the room. And I'm like, I'm going to fucking, I need to sing harder <laughs> than that guy is playing drums. Like I'm going to sing harder, you know? And it's yeah. kind of what the song needed was just to like go for it and to be yeah. un uncareful about it. It's kind of what the song needed. Yeah. You sound mad. I was like mad. Yeah. There, there's like one point in the song where I was like, whoa, she's going to hurt herself for singing so uh, hard. <laughs> yeah, I was I was mad. And it's not that I was mad at, at the drummer at JTS. <laughs> it was like that was part of the experience it was like a meta experience that was happening in the in the mm. room. But it really was about just like, oh, my frustration with the culture, but mostly with myself. You know, that's really mm. that's really what it is. You go up by mistake, go up by surprise. Grow up underneath the gaze of many grown men's eyes Try to act your age now, but you don't know how it's done All grown up and somehow still afraid to disappoint someone Let him have his way instead of saying 
now you know. So this song has been recorded before on XOA. When I think about dying, I think about children. And when I think about children, I think about you. And when I think about you, I feel like crying. Crying for my youth. I love this recording on the new album and I celebrate it, although like I feel slightly partial to your solo guitar version. Mm -hmm. I clearly remember hearing it the first time, like where I was, where I was sitting, my eyes filling with tears. And it reminded me of the way that I felt so strongly about the Hadestown songs. Like even on the 2010 album, I remember hearing that album and just feeling like so attached to the live versions that I knew of just like you performing yeah. with the guitar. So I wonder why like that happens. Like does that happen to you where you hear a song that was like recorded like previously and then there's a new recording how do you like reckon with that feeling? Do you feel guilty that you're not able to detach yourself from the verse version that you heard? And then also like playing into your own recording of Now You Know versus this new one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, such a good question. I totally know what you mean. I get attached to the first the first thing I hear. And, and I also like have always loved solo stuff. Like I love to hear just a voice on a guitar or voice in a piano. Like if there's something about that that it's just so immediate and like really grab really just grabs me i almost didn't put this one on the record but then it seemed like it belonged with these other songs it's so connected you know it's also about growing up and it's about yeah you know, letting go of sort of maidenhood and your youth and kind of love for someone that is, that is like lifelong and just the journey of that Type of relationship. Seems like you're too young to have written that song. <laughs> Thank you. That feels so. That feels. I feel that way about a lot of your songs, though. They're too young to write them. Oh, uh, maybe I'm older than you think, Cindy. <laughs> you're, you're like 200 years old. I'm 200 years old, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's. Um, it's funny. Sometimes you write a song that you sort of, you think you know what it means, but then you get older and then you really know what it means. You think it's about one thing and then you realize it's about another thing, or you think you're writing for someone else and then you realize you're writing it for yourself in the future. And I think of my life And I want to be with you Shoulder to shoulder When we're waking up And we're waking up And we're one day older and we're making love Found what I'm not looking for A melody as sweet and pure As anyone sung by the birds I'm Trying to find the words Okay, the See words you wrote, this is your woe is me, it's hard to write songs song where you say, I think artists of all kinds will relate to the irony that in trying to turn life into art will often miss out on life itself. So have you written a song like this before? And then how did writing this song help you like check yourself when you find yourself missing out on life? Yeah, this one also was really hard to write <laughs> in a meta, you know, thing. Yeah, it's connected to something else that we were talking about. What was it? Oh, the real world, right? 
It's like mm-hmm. I want to live in the real world, and 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 in a certain way, being an artist, becoming obsessed with turning the real world into art, you do sort of miss you miss out on certain things. And in this song, I really like my partner is in the song, and also my kids, because there's a moment at the end where it's like. I'm sort of asking the kid, like, can you tell me, is this worth it, what I'm doing? And the kid doesn't care. You know, the the kid's going (laughs) to run out and play because the sun is shining outside. I guess there is a making peace feeling about writing this song. Certainly, like, yeah, I need to check myself. I need to live in the real world as well as the world of where where I'm doing my work. And then also, like, doing my work as crazy making as it is, it's like, it just, it gives meaning to my life. It feels... It feels like my dharma, you know, and I, Mm. if I'm not doing it, it's hard to, um, you know, relax and enjoy if I'm not doing the work. So it's kind of like acceptance that like, this is my weird path and and I got to keep it in check. And I'm also like, I'm Mm. grateful for it. Penny for a child's thoughts. Can you tell me what it costs? Can you tell me what it's worth? Trying to find the words Never mind you run and play Who needs pennies anyway? Outside it's a sunny day Meanwhile the birds sing Meanwhile the church bells ring Meanwhile the children last song of the album is Watershed. Nobody gives you a map of the ridge. You climb one mountain and you find the next. Follow the river to the fountainhead. Watershed. The tallest summit you look up to. Someday it's gonna look small to you. There's a new one coming into view. And you'll climb that too, but before you do. You get time to stand looking off the ledge Where the rivers branch to the east and the west And to catch your breath at the sight of it Are the heights on which your heart was set That you won so hard and then lost so fast Are now somehow just silhouettes You stop and bend in the light that's left And you cup your hands in the river it sounds like, Josh, this is a song that you could have gotten, like, totally oh, carried away with. How do you determine, like, when you're, like, overdoing it on a song? And how did it go with Watershed? It's funny. Um, I think there's a lot of the songs on this record that are, like, epic poems and epic stories that you could get carried away with, you know? And I think I wanted it at no point to sort of, like, for the music to go up like for the level, the water level of the music to like rise above Aeneas. Like I wanted her to be the sort of light always there at the top of everything. So the vocal really, really loud and the lyric really, really like up front and for everything else almost to not really be playing other melodies. Like I didn't want like mm-hmm. a record with like top line hooks and like punchy snare drum and stuff like that. Like I just wanted Aeneas to be doing all that basically. So like her vocal is like, has lots of lines in it, you know, like her, 
her, the way that, I don't know, Aeneas, the way you sing, like it's very like clear what the rhythm is, like just from the way you sing. And I don't think that we, we needed to like, um, we didn't need to sort of gild the lily, you know, we didn't need to like add stuff to mm. that. It felt like it was kind of telling the story all by itself. So it was like this sort of subtle, more subtle kind of way of presenting these super epic songs, I, I think. Right. Making the epic part, okay, making the epic part more Aeneas, less production, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Josh, oh my God, I'm getting so excited like hearing you talk about I just want to make more, I just want to make more songs. Like, you know, and it, I was saying to Cindy how you start to kind of like feel like an imposter the moment that you start to talk about the thing that you made for you. Yeah. But like right now, I'm like, oh my God, I got to go make another song. Like, oh <laughs> that's all you can do with the energy. I yes. know, I feel the same way. That's yeah. All you can do with it is like, like, oh, I'm starting to feel weird. I got to go make more music. Yeah. 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 Totally. Good answer. Yeah. All right. Okay. Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye, Josh. Love you. Have a great day. Bye. It's really funny what he didn't say is that, like, my manager, Liz, who's in London, um, is, like, she's always, like, with her, like, British accent, she's, like, she wanted that song to, like, drop harder. Like, in the court, she was always, like, can we make it just drop harder? And, (laughs) and, like... We added a bunch of stuff to kind of, I think we did like some like synth bass and I went in there and put some harmonies on the thing. We were like, can we kick it up in the chorus more? But it ultimately like there was a ceiling to how far I think Josh wanted that to go. And I think Mm. you're right that it's a song that is like, it could get sort of bombastic almost or like, you Mm. know, really sweeping. And he wanted, I think this whole record, I think he sort of intuited that it's not a larger than life album. Like it's really, it's a life size album and collection of songs. And it wanted to feel life size. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a real epic quality to a lot of his, his sonic world that he lives in, but it's not, you know, yeah, it doesn't get kind of bigger than it should. So that's mm-hmm. we we were definitely riding a line with this one. I finally found the question I asked, and I don't know. It's kind of a lame question, but the setup is amazing. Okay. All right. Okay, great. So the watershed is the name of a natural area that you hung around in high school and rediscovered during the pandemic. So it's a song about making peace with the big picture. And you were giving the commencement speech at Middlebury College last spring, which is a great speech and very much worth watching. To sum up, you shared these words of wisdom. Most of our time, we're in the woods trying to keep up. At these watershed moments, we get a brief view of the big picture. Rituals of public recognition, you said, I am the least present and able to grasp the significance of the moment. Graduation day, Tony acceptance speech, my own wedding. (laughs) Um, And you said, it's okay if you're not grasping the significance of the ritual because it's bigger than you and find some quiet time where you can stand at your own mountaintop and look forward to what's ahead before you're back in the woods again. So allow yourself to dwell a while in your watershed moments because it has insights and we only get so much of them in a lifetime, which is like, whoo, great. That was, I don't know how you write stuff like that. Thank you for reading that. That's so sweet. You did such (laughs) research. (laughs) Amazing. But it was such a good speech, you know, and it's only like Mm -hmm. 20 minutes long. And it is so funny how you're like, I had to look up who who our commencement speaker was at our graduation. And I'm like trying to remember who was at our commencement 
speaker at graduation. It was probably like someone from Yahoo or something. But um, <laughs> so how did you come to that conclusion of like, I'm not so fully present at these huge moments in my life and that's okay, but I need to like dwell in them a little bit because there's so much knowledge available in them. So how did, how did you get there? And now how do you prepare yourself for those watershed moments? Mm. Yeah, well, it was like I experienced enough of them where I was like, <laughs> it's funny because my eight-year-old is really into um, holiday planning. Like she loves, she's just like gunning for, you know, Hanukkah until it's like now she's gunning for Christmas. And then it's like Easter, like whatever's next. And then when the thing comes, I'm always like, is she actually enjoying this? <laughs> you know, or was it really just about the planning for it? There have been so many of those moments where it's the moment when everyone has a microphone in front of your face and they're like, how does it feel? You know, how excited mm. are you? This is incredible. Like I'm thinking about the Tonys or get, you know, finally, finally landing on Broadway after so many years. And I just didn't know. I just didn't know how to respond to that. I just wasn't I wasn't present with those feelings at that time. And ultimately, like, that's not, you know. That's not where the kind of heart of any of the stuff is. But it did definitely feel like leaving New York, I was able to reflect on that, that work, all that work and, and, the, and that kind of extraordinary experience of, get, of, of doing the thing that seemed like an impossible thing, that it, it happened, you know? I didn't even believe it was real. Like, I didn't even believe that real people could win Tonys. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It all seemed like, like it was made up, but actually it's real. Like, people... Yeah, I did really have this experience when I was when I was writing that song Watershed. I kind of thought, man, somebody should sing this. Some like a cappella group should sing this at a at a graduation. And I even reached out to the school and and said, you know, could the, could one of the Middlebury a cappella groups like back me up on this if I sang it with them? And and they couldn't do it because of COVID. Like I wasn't even oh. in the same room as the students. It was just being filmed in the in a separate room. I yeah, I had this feeling when I was talking to those kids, it was as if I was on a little mountaintop, you know, of the watershed I'm at. And I'm looking at them on their own little mountaintop over there. Because I remember what that's like when you suddenly putting your kind of institutional, like educational life behind you and you're striking out on your mm. own at like in your early 20s. That is such a moment of like clarity and possibility and mm. nostalgia and reflection and excitement. And like, it is hard in the moment when everyone's asking you how that feels to actually know how it feels. But I think this is connected to the phone thing also, because it's like, you got to get on the mountaintop where there's no cell service yeah. <laughs> to have this reflection, right? <laughs> Otherwise you're going to just like be posting a picture of yourself in your square cap and thinking that you've done it. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yes. Kind of like also is like with any of these activist activism moments where you're like, oh, my God, I'm so upset about, you know, climate change or like racial equality in this country or whatever it is. And you're like, I'll make a post about it. And then it's done. Like, no, you actually haven't done anything. <laughs> you yeah. just made a post about it. And like that's a real that's a real situation we have. I'm not anti those things. I think that it is important to express ourselves with each other on the Internet, but also to do it in the real world. I try to do that now, like if I if I find myself posting something 
not let myself do it unless I'm also calling the senator or like writing a letter mm -hmm. or like donating some money to an organization. Just that something happened in the real world as well as, you know. So it's sincere. You know? Right, right. What a shit. What a shit. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to say goodbye to those listening on the main feed, and then we're going to do something special for those who have special access to backstage. Cool. Basic folk. Yeah. Okay. But goodbye to the main feed. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been, it's always like so fun to talk to you and thank you for making time for us. Totally. Likewise. Thank you for everything that you are doing to shine a light on music in this world. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And congratulations on the new album. Thank you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. You can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you find podcasts or at basicfolk.com. Make sure if you're a contributing member to check out the extended lightning round with Anais Mitchell backstage. We'll actually be posting a preview in a couple of days to entice you to join us. And you can gain access backstage by going to basicfolk.com slash donate. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.